My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. And I remember going to the interview and just telling the, 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 the manager there that, look, I've, so I'm going to apply for every single one of the roles you advertise until you give me a job. <laughs> and fortunately, he gave me the first one I applied for. This is Property Investory where we talk to successful property investors to find out more about their stories, mindset and strategies. I'm Tyrone Shum and in this episode, we're talking with financial planner and host of the Financial Autonomy podcast, Paul Benson. We learn why he purchased a commercial property instead of leasing it for his business, he how he managed to turn $10,000 into $90,000 on his first investment as well as the secret to creating choice for your investments. Paul Benson is a brilliant financial planner and property investor with many properties under his belt. So, how and why did you decide to start a podcast? I'm a financial planner and uh, I've been doing that for about 20 years. you and I, of course, connected because we both host podcasts. So the podcast that I host is Financial Autonomy and uh, and I've been doing that for two and a half years or so. We've actually got episode 200 coming up. So uh, it must be about four years, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, that's right. And uh, and that's, that's just been wonderful. Um, off the back of that, uh, I got a book deal. I had a book come out last year, which was fantastic. Um, you know, obviously met a lot of wonderful people. Uh, and, I, and it's also just helped uh, clarify my own thoughts, I suppose, you know, from when I started the podcast and, and, and I know Tyrone, you know, you and I spoke a little bit about your story and, and, you know, you started as a podcast fan and that led you to create your own podcast or that was part of the motivation and, and I was very much in the same boat, you know, keen uh, podcast consumer uh, got a lot out of podcasts and uh, through different conversations why don't we have a go at this ourselves and it just took a little bit of time to find exactly how what we were going to do and how it was going to be a bit different and interesting to what was already out there uh, but yeah the financial autonomy podcast was born and uh, as I say it's been a lot of fun and it's been positive to the financial planning business um, which is which is frankly what puts food on the table uh, and uh, yeah it's been it's been a wonderful journey so that that's kind of how how we're here with the idea and plan ready to go, all that was left was a name. He came up with financial autonomy which is super unique. So, where did it come from? Funnily enough, I heard it on a podcast. I was listening to uh, an American podcast that interviewed 
financial planners about their business. And, you know, because I was running a financial planning business, obviously that was one that I listened to. So it probably doesn't have a a huge listenership because it's very niche, but it was relevant to me. And the uh, financial planner that was being interviewed, just it was just an offhand remark. She was just talking about different bits and pieces and she just said, I we do this for our clients and I think of it as financial autonomy. And on she went and just that, oh, financial autonomy. I love it. It just stuck in my head. I just, it really resonated with me. And, um, you know, I guess what's, you know, I started the podcast and yeah, financial autonomy, that was a name and an idea and it just kind of worked, but it's all come about and particularly, I guess, come together in the book. I have been advising and working with clients for a long time and financial planning, it's, it's a wonderful career. I'd certainly, you know, recommend it to any, any particular young person if they're thinking about, <clears throat> excuse me, thinking about going to university uh, and studying. But the great thing is you get to work with lots of people and you get to learn about their stories. And I guess what I've been able to do is reflect on particularly, I guess, older clients that I've known for a long period of time or who, who would I like to be in their position? right? Who do I think has really won the game? Who's been successful? And then I guess reverse engineer, how did they get there? How did that happen? And similarly, there are some instances where I think, boy, I don't want to end up there, right? So I had a good opportunity to to see all these different experiences of people. And of course, some people love their property investments. Some people like shares. Some people are very conservative investors. Some people are very high income earners. Other people, low income earners. There's all sorts of different ways and there's all sorts of different goals and objectives. Um, And through my financial planning experience, I was able to see potentially thousands. I mean, when I think about my career uh, of different examples and, and I guess learn from that. And so, um, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, the the book and, and, and what we cover in the podcast and things today is is the outcome of looking at all these people's different scenarios, reflecting on what worked, what didn't, and then developing that into something, into a framework. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Benson continues to explain what exactly goes into a book deal and how long the whole process takes. About six months, I did it mostly, I, I did a good chunk of it. We always closed for a few weeks over Christmas and and we weren't, this particular summer, we weren't going away on holidays. So I was able to really rip into it then and perhaps got, I don't know, half of it done over that summer break. And then it took me several months after that because then obviously sort of back at work, less time to devote to it. So it was really just weekends, you know, it took me a few months from there. Um yeah, but you know, there's a bit of process. Um, I don't know. I had a pu- publisher approach me, and then obviously there was a bit of back and forth on how we kind of get this done. And and then of course, once you do the writing, then it needs to be edited, and there's all sorts of layout design. And, and the book has quite a lot of diagrams in it, so there's quite a bit of work to be done there. And and there's things you don't think about too. It's a classic. You don't know what you don't know, but. Uh, I mean, just things like writing the, the contents pages in the back, which fortunately I didn't have to do. Well, not the contents page, you know, the index bit. I mean, there was a context, contents page too, of course. But the index at the back, right? Now, I don't have, you know, the editor did that, but it still takes time. Um, and, you know, um, like different sources that I'd mentioned, like they go through and validate all those sources. And, yeah, it's interesting that the process uh, involved in getting a, po- a book to the point where it can be published and, uh 
Uh, I, know, I mean, I know a lot of people self-publish these days, which is which is awesome. But I must say, I'm glad to have been fortunate enough to have, have, have worked with a publisher because, um, yeah, there's a lot to it. <laughs> On top of his podcast, Benson runs his own business as a financial planner and also writes for Fairfax. His well-planned schedule gives him time to do it all. Well, uh, I own the business and I've got three staff and that's a nice place to be because I can control my diary. And so, my diary says Mondays, Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm available to see clients. Uh, Wednesdays is content creation. So, that's creating podcasts and I I write in the Fairfax in the money section of Fairfax. So, I do a bit of that. Uh, There's a weekly newsletter we do, that sort of stuff. So, Wednesdays is my creative day and it's also pay the bills and do that kind of boring stuff. And then Fridays is client servicing. So, uh, you know, we've got a good group of existing clients. So, I just have Fridays blocked out. So, do things crop up during the week and an existing client just needs this researched or needs something done, then I've got time on Friday and I get that done. Benson had a normal upbringing growing up with good parents in a good area. However, he moved around quite a bit in his primary school years. I grew up in Monterna, which is a, a outer eastern suburb of Melbourne, you know, newish estate. In grade prep, I was, yeah, I went to three different primary schools. I guess that's vaguely interesting. Uh, there was a primary school I went to, which was you know, near my parents' first home and then uh, then they bought a, a bigger family home in a, in a new estate further, you know, which was in Monterna, so further out and, uh, yeah, there was an old primary school near where we lived and then because it was a new estate, they built a new primary school and so I moved to the new one for the back half of my primary school education. So, uh, so three different primary schools but always the same high school and, yeah, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a fair way out of town and not much public transport, but it was good to ride your bike. And there was, bit, you know, fragments of, I mean, bush is a bit kind of overstating it, but anyway, not developed land. And so, yeah, you could you could zoom around on your BMX, and there was plenty of jumps and and things to muck around on. So, uh, no, it was good. Just a you know, pretty typical middle Australia uh, upbringing, I would think. But as every Aussie kid knows, there's always a fun way to escape suburban normality. I had a good friend of mine who was a couple of, we lived in a court and his house was a couple of houses along. And during daylight savings, it was a tradition for, for quite a while that after dinner, he and I would go out and we'd just play cricket until pretty much until the streetlights came on. That was sort of the, the delineation of, all right, it's time to go home. And uh, always enjoyed that. And, and I don't know how it evolved, but you couldn't wear shoes. You know, clearly you were soft if you, you had to go barefoot. Um, and, and, yeah, one of us bowled, the other one batted. Um, you could sort of drive it straight down the uh, straight down the court. There was a drain further down. If you got the ball in the drain, you were out because that was a pain. But inevitably, you could lift up the concrete thing and someone would crawl between the spiders and retrieve our tennis ball. But you know, never never wrapped when it went down the drain. Uh, so yeah, look, they were really good memories, and that's a, a friend of mine that I'm still still in touch with today. Although he's, I'm still in Melbourne. He's up in southern New South Wales, but uh, yeah, we're still in touch to this day. So that's a really nice memory. After high school, Benson's plans for the future weren't concrete, but eventually they fell into place. I didn't get the the VCE, the HSC result that I kind of hoped for. And so I didn't get into the specific uni course that I wanted to get into. The one I did get into necessitated we, me me moving out of home, which wasn't really part of the broader family plan. So I deferred that for a year. I had, when I finished high school, I actually 
went around and applied for a couple of jobs with some banks and and I got offered two of them and the, the way that I decided which one I would take is which one started sooner because my expectation was that this was going to be a summer job which is pretty selfish of me really but I didn't appreciate that as a teenager and uh, so I was just looking to you know make a bit of cash and get a bit of experience for two or three months before uni started uh, so Commonwealth Bank was the one that was going to get me started the soonest so I grabbed that one and then, as I say, I didn't get into the course that I really wanted to get into. The one that I got offered, I wasn't all that thrilled about. So I deferred it just to sort of keep it up my sleeve. And I just figured, all right, well, I'll just keep on working. I've got a job. I'll just run with it for 12 months. And then I'll apply again at the end of that 12-month period and see what happens. Uh, and so that was good. So then I worked for 12 months, just bank teller, just, you know, boring, basically, you got to start somewhere sort of job. Um and but but I was able to get I got six weeks leave at one point six weeks leave without pay and did a bit of backpacking around Europe with some friends so that was a wonderful experience and that definitely made me aware that there's a big wide world out there and spending your rest the rest of your life as a bank teller was probably not the best option you know the best path uh, and I guess quite a few of my friends of course they were at uni as well so that helped. So then it was getting towards the end of that year and I still didn't want to do the course that I'd actually got into. So I applied for some others and went and spoke to some and my manager at the, at the bank branch was good enough to, to sort of write me a nice letter. The bank helped further with an amazing program that supported Vincent through uni. And the bank at the time had a, a program where if you did a, a, a business, anything remotely related to finance, they would support you, they give you days off for exams, they'd give you study days and in fact, if you ultimately, well, they'd reimburse you for school books, you had to pay for them and if you passed, they would give you the money back and they'd even uh, cover hex down the road when you had to pay it back if you passed and you were still working with them. So it was actually, I didn't really appreciate it as, a, as an 18-year-old but I appreciated it later on. It was actually a very generous um, uh, deal. So... So in the end, I had uh, the course that I had always wanted to get into accepted me with with this sort of bank recommendation and, and, and things, um, but on a part time basis. So so it was two nights a week. So I continued to work uh, at the bank. I, I changed to a more inner city um, uh, branch so that I could get get to classes on time. Um, and I so I you know four hours. I mean, it didn't always go a full four hours, but twice a week, four hours, sort of 5.30 to 9.30 and then sort of study on Saturdays. Um, and, and I ended up, and my initial thinking was, well, I'll do this for the first, I'll do this for two years, which is the equivalent of one year full-time and then I'll apply to transfer to full-time. But by that point, I don't know, I got pretty used to having some money in the door and, you know, the thought of going back to full-time uni didn't quite grab me. So I ended up just doing the whole lot part-time. It took six years. Uh, I think I was fortunate that I was young enough that I didn't have kids and a lot of other distractions. So I don't know, you know, some of my friends, because you do a lot of group assignments and stuff, as I'm sure you remember, and, and, and some of some of the friends that I was doing those with, because it was part-time, so everyone was working, they were at a point where they had children and, and bigger commitments and I've got no idea how they got it done. I don't think I could have could have managed it. But as a 19-year-old, 20-year-old, pretty self-absorbed, um, there's not much else going on. Uh, you just got to balance not sort of partying too hard on the weekend. Um, you know, I could make it work. And, uh, and of course, it was good to get that work experience on the way through. 
while he was still in uni, Benson was offered what he thought was his dream job. And towards the end of the course, I got into a, I got into a role that probably assumed you'd already finished, graduated from the course, but I got in anyway. It was a, an analyst kind of role, planning and research, which I guess was the role that I had kind of always aspired to. I, I thought that would be uh, that analyst type position. That was really what I was trying to hit. My degree was economics and finance and that was where I was where I was going. And I got this role and I did it for a while and I actually discovered that mm, I'm not loving it. I can do it, but I'm not loving it. Actually, spending all day looking at spreadsheets didn't really, yeah, it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me long term anyway. Um, so that caused me to sort of step back and reflect what am I going to do here? And I appreciate, you know, I recognize that investing, particularly, and I know this is a property podcast, but for me, particularly, share investing had always been of interest and held appeal. And, and it wasn't much of a stretch from the degree that I'd done to, to look at investing. So uh, I guess a benefit of being in a big organization, there's lots of different roles. So uh, I saw this financial planning role, which back then, was a vastly different role to what financial planning is today. Uh, and I remember, you know, so I put my hand up for a role there and I remember going to the interview and just telling the the, the, the manager there that, look, I've, uh, at that point I must have been with the bank. Uh, I'd finished my degree by then, so perhaps seven years, something like that, and just saying, look, I, I've done some time in, in branch land, I've done some time in head office analyst and, I, and I've reached the point where I know what I want to do and I know that this financial planning, that that's what I want to do. So I'm going to apply for every single one of the roles you advertise until you give me a job. <laughs> and fortunately, he gave me the first one I applied for. Um, and, and so that was great. And I, I worked as a financial planner there for seven years. I left in 2006. Uh, and I'm glad to have left but I'm glad to have had that sort of apprenticeship I suppose and uh, you know there's been a lot of issues as many of you listeners will know with financial planning in bank land and that sort of relates to why I'm glad I left because yeah there were definitely problems with banks trying to do financial planning you know they're conflicted in terms of their manufacturing product and they're trying to give advice on those products at the same time and that was made me uncomfortable but it was still good learning and it was a good – there was lots of good things to come out of that as well and it and it then enabled me to step out, start my own business in 2006, do things the way I wanted to do them and the way I felt that they should be done and uh, it's been a good, good journey from there. Coming up after the break, we'll delve into Paul Benson's investment journey starting with his first ever property. This was an old, frankly, but ugly flat, brown brick, nothing very appealing about it, probably 1970s, but a good location and and it fitted in my budget. Here how he used his first property to buy a second one. But it was, um, particularly the flat really set me up and as I say, that, that leverage really highlighted what was possible. We also find out how he escaped the trap most people fall into when leasing commercial property. And the cost of fitting it out, I was freaking out. <laughs> Bloody hell, I've got, to spend, I've got to spend all this money getting it looking nice and then maybe five years later, I leave and the landlord just goes, oh, thanks for that. And that's next. I'm Tyrone Shum and you're listening to Property Investory. 
Hey property investor, is your cash or equity currently earning you 1 to 2% per annum sitting in the bank? What if I said to you that you can do better? To find out more, simply register your interest to become a money partner at propertyinvestory.com. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest to get a higher return with low risk on their money for 6 months. Register your interest by visiting propertyinvestory.com. Benson explained the process he goes through to assess risks and assets when looking to improve any kind of investment. So we've got a, a framework and a key portion of that is there's three different pathways, one of which is property, the other the others are stocks and shares and self-employment. And to circle back, as I say, the, the, that whole framework and the whole financial autonomy thing is, is derived from reverse engineering what's made people successful, right? And so I've looked at that and gone, okay, these are, these are the pathways that everyone that I've dealt with who is successful financially has followed. So, and clearly property is one. Usually, of the people I've dealt with, it's, it's a piece of the puzzle and not the entire puzzle. Um, often they might, for instance, start a business and that's quite successful. And then they will, in the course of that business, maybe they buy the factory that they operate out of or the office that they operate out of, perhaps through a self-managed super fund, for instance. Uh, there might be an opportunity, uh, whatever, you know, whether it's commercial property, residential property, but the property investment is kind of stage two. Stage one was creating the business building a successful business that's then throwing off surplus cash flow and then they're thinking about, right, how can I put that surplus cash flow to work or I'm going to put some of that into a property. Um, Of course, you also get just regular wage earners but that are earning enough income that there's a surplus and, again, that they can put that into property. Uh, Typically, most people are going to buy their own home before they're thinking about investment but you don't have to. You could go the the reverse. but I, I guess an observation would be that, as I say, for most people, property of the people I've worked with, and I know a lot of your listeners' experience would be different, but this is just through the, the prism that I'm looking through. The property investment portion is often sort of phase two. Phase one is either developing their career or developing their business and generating a strong cash flow. And then the property is the solution to, all right, I've got this surplus cash flow and or I've got equity in my home because I've paid it down and there's been good good growth in my home. What's the next step? And, and one avenue might be investing in stocks or something, but a valid avenue, particularly in Australia, is, all right, I'm going to get some property exposure. Uh, and so that's sort of where I see it playing out. Choice is something Benson talks about often because it is so important. He knows firsthand how impactful the power of choice is. When we think about financial autonomy, our, our definition of success is gaining choice, right? So we're not, you know, retire early. Hey, if, if that's the choice you want, retire early, fine, but we're not particularly advocating all the fire movement and stuff that a lot of your listeners. We're just, success is you've gained choice, whatever that looks like for you, being able to quit a job because you hate the boss, right? If, if that, if that, that, that's what we're trying to do, gain choice. Um, and yeah, thinking about that equity, the, the property piece, um, 
as I mentioned, I became self-employed in 2006. And at the time, uh, we had two children and one, my youngest was under one year old. He was born in 2005, maybe a little bit older than one year. But anyway, very young. Uh, My wife was at home full time caring for the children. So me quitting a job and therefore (laughs) income stops, start a new career, a new, not even a career, a new business was pretty risky and to be honest it feels more risky looking back now I was probably overconfident back in the day <laughs> I guess I had a bit of a sense that look if this all went pear-shaped I'm sure I could go back and get a, a, an employee job somewhere um, but it was definitely the fact that we had equity in the home helped make that viable I mean initially when I left I was fortunate I had eight months leave up my sleeve. I had long service leave and I hadn't used quite a lot of sick leave. So so that gave me a buffer. That was my runway, I suppose. But then in 2008, I was able to buy another business from a retiring, retiring planner. And in some respects, the timing on that wasn't great because that was just a GFC struck and it was a bit of a challenging time. But had I not bought that business, it would have been challenging as well because it wasn't a lot of new business inquiries through that period. Um, but the only reason I was able to buy that business is because I had enough equity in my property, in my home, to be able to secure the financing to buy that business. So to, to your point, um, yeah, property can be a great way to to build some equity, particularly uh, leverage is an important part of this, which we might get to later. But um, build that equity, then that equity gives you choice. And this is what I was circling back to uh, you know, earlier. It's about having choice and property is good in gaining you that choice for the reasons I've just explained. It tends to, particularly due to the benefit of leverage, you tend to build equity reasonably quickly and then through that equity, there's all sorts of things you can do, whether it's buy another property, uh, buy some shares, buy a business, have a have a, a 12-month sabbatical and you know live in the West Indies or whatever floats your boat, right? But it's gaining your choice through that creation of equity and that's something. And and the nice thing too is the equity is quite accessible, whereas if you create equity in a share portfolio, usually the only way to access that is to sell the shares, which then triggers capital gains tax and that you know has some other issues. Whereas the property, you could retain the property and just borrow against that property, then you haven't triggered any tax. Now, if it's, if it's your home, I guess you haven't triggered any capital gains tax anyway, but there's still stamp duty and all sorts of transaction costs. You don't really want to do that. Uh, properties a lot easier to access the equity where it's not so easy with with other types of investments. Now, let's talk about Benson's property investment journey. With four properties in his portfolio, he explains how he managed to buy his first two properties. So, I've owned three, uh, beg your pardon, I've owned four properties, well, three of those with my wife, um, but the first one was before she came on the scene, uh, and three of those I still own. Um, I haven't done any property development, uh, but yeah, four properties over the journey. So the first one was a flat in Kew, which is sort of inner city Melbourne. Uh, It is a nice area. This was an old, frankly, but ugly flat, brown brick, nothing very appealing about it, probably 1970s, but a good location. And and it fitted in my budget, which was not very much at the time. But you got to start somewhere, and in your first home doesn't have to be your forever home, right? So, so I got in there, and I was, I was quite lucky. I mean, 
I, partly I made that work. It was a two-bedroom, and I, I'd been living in share houses prior to that, so I kind of knew how that worked. So when I bought that place, I could afford it on my own, but I went in there with the expectation that I would get a flatmate to just help, and and I did, and and she was wonderful. Uh, and so, yeah, so that helped make it affordable. And I was probably there, I think, about three years, not all that long. And whilst I was there, I met my wife, and, and we decided we wanted to to get a family home uh but fortunately the the value of the property moved so uh, and some people listening will be disgusted with the numbers but anyway (laughs) they they were it was cheaper back then um so i paid 107,000 and i sold it for 189,000 now and so that that's good growth in three years right but really the story was yeah, I mean, I only put in a 10% deposit, right? So I put in just shy of 11 grand and I would have had a few costs. And I, I mean, I didn't make much dent in the mortgage during that period. But, you know, I walked out with 90 odd grand, right? Um, so my, my 11 turned into 90 odd. Now, I've done the maths on that in the website and in the book. I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I'm sure your listeners can see that's a pretty awesome return, right? And that highlights that value of leverage that the property increased in value by, I don't know, 70, 80%, whatever the numbers come to, but that's not per annum, obviously, but just total. Uh, but my outcome was far different to that because I'd leveraged and only put in a 10% deposit. And so that then gave me a good portion of equity. And then my wife and I bought our home. She had some some money to contribute there as well. And I don't think it grew as quickly as that flat. I mean, and 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 to be absolutely clear, the fact that the flat went from 107 to 189 in three years was pure luck. It had absolutely, there was no skill on my part. <laughs> I just bought what I could afford in an area that I sort of liked. I was working in the city, but, it, you know, there was no great skill. It was just luck. Uh, but it gave me the opportunity to get into the next place, which, you know, then we could buy a house. Uh, we're in, in, in Mooney Ponds for the for the Melbourne listeners, so reasonably in a city, although not as much as Kew, and a bit more around to the sort of north, bordering on northwest, but a really nice part of the world. And uh, you know, we were able to uh, do an extension and renovation on that a few years down the road, and 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 you know, that's still our home today, and that that's worked really well. And and as I touched on. Be, through the equity in that property as it increased in value and obviously we we put in a good deposit uh, enabled me to then to then buy the business and that enabled me to do some other things there so so that was I guess residential flat to the home we're in today so probably not all that exciting but it was um, particularly the flat really set me up and as I say that that leverage really highlighted what was possible. In a future episode of Property Investory, we'll continue the conversation with Paul Benson where we'll discuss his worst investment decision. The bank that lent us the money decided they weren't prepared to lend to financial planning businesses anymore. The power of leverage. That's what leverage does. It magnifies your outcome. Now, it magnifies it both ways. So if it goes down, you're in trouble. But if it magnifies it in the right way, um, 
that's extremely powerful. The flip side to buying a business during the Great Financial Crisis or GFC was that clients were keen to talk to somebody because they were concerned. And that's next time in a future episode of Property Investory. And if you love the show and are ready to get serious about investing your money to get a low risk, high return, then SMS me your name and email address on 0499881040 to become a money partner. Right now, there are great opportunities in the property market and I'm looking for money partners who want to invest their money for a short six months. To register interest, text me your name and email address on 0499881040. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.